0: Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutor's Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at Nipti Law. ww.nypti.org law. The people see, respondent. V. Robert Maffei, appellant. David P. Greenberg, for appellant. and Bordley, for respondent. a chief judge. In this direct appeal, defendant claims he was denied the effective assistance of counsel based on a single purported error, counsel's failure to challenge a prospective juror. We agree with the appellate division that defendant, on this record, has not sustained his burden to establish that counsel was constitutionally ineffective. Therefore, The appropriate procedure for the litigation of defendant's challenge to his counsel's performance is a CPL 440.10 motion, the very mechanism designed by the legislature to enable review of factual issues de or the record. Accordingly, we affirm the order of the appellate division. In May 2003, the victim, the rear passenger in a vehicle, was shot in the head and killed in a drive-by shooting. Defendant was indicted in 2006 and charged with depraved indifference murder, among other charges. Over two years later, defendant's trial commenced. In the first round of jury selection, the trial court questioned prospective juror number 10, who stated that his uncle and cousin were law enforcement officers in Puerto Rico and that, several years earlier, he was charged with marijuana possession and performed community service as a result. When asked by the court whether the latter experience would cause him to be unfair, he responded, No, not at all. The prosecutor, at the outset of his voir dire in round one, asked the prospective jurors to raise their hand if they could not be fair and render a verdict after listening to the evidence. He summarized the facts of the case and too began asking prospective jurors whether anything in their background would cause them to question whether they could be impartial. After one juror responded that his sister had been the victim of a random shooting, the prosecutor asked if anyone had a similar situation with something in their past. Prospective juror number 10 requested to speak, and the following exchange ensued. Prospective juror, I think I read about this in the papers. Prosecutor, this case did receive publicity. Go ahead, sir. Prospective juror, to be honest with you, I remember reading. Kind of made up my mind then prosecutor, kind of made up your mind then? Prospective juror, didn't like the circumstances. I remember reading about it, making a decision kind of in my own head at that time. Prosecutor, you understand it's up to me now to prove to you, beyond a reasonable doubt, who is the actual person that actually did it, right? Prospective juror, right? Prosecutor, you might have made up your mind. I believe that was a really bad act. I didn't like the way it happened. Do you understand I have to prove who did it? Prospective juror, yes. The trial court explained that the jury would be instructed to avoid media coverage of the case, further commenting. As prospective juror number 10 indicated, he said he made up his mind. That is a bad thing. Obviously, someone was arrested. There's nobody here who is in favor of someone being shot to death in most circumstances. What is important is that it's this defendant who is charged with that crime. The burden lives with the prosecutor. That he has to prove that this is the person who did that. Okay? You can remain fair and impartial. Prospective juror number 10 responded, I hope so, prompting the trial court to remind him of the need to answer unequivocally, to which he twice responded, I'm not sure. The prosecutor explained that the depraved indifference murder charge implicates the same punishment as an intentional crime, despite requiring only proof of recklessness. In response to questioning about that charge, prospective juror number 10 stated, I feel if it's a good case, I'll go by the law. The prosecutor then asked whether prospective juror number 10 felt he was treated fairly in connection with his prior marijuana arrest, and he answered that he was treated fairly at one point but not at the time he was arrested, but denied he remained angry about the experience. When questioned about his relatives in law enforcement, he asserted he did not speak with them about their cases and that he would judge police as anyone else. Defense counsel then conducted his portion of the voir dire, asking questions of prospective jurors, both individually and collectively as a group, including whether any of them would have difficulty presuming defendant innocent, were exposed in their personal lives to law enforcement, had particularized knowledge about handguns, or would require defendant to testify in order to acquit. He directly asked four unnamed prospective jurors whether they would be able to acquit if the people presented insufficient evidence, and all four answered affirmatively. He concluded by asking the panel to answer, by way of show of hands, whether he had their assurance that if you, as an individual, do not believe that the district attorney has proven this case to you beyond a reasonable doubt they could stick to the courage of their convictions as the lone holdout voting for acquittal and whether they were each accountable to the job of serving on the jury and by urging them to notify him if there was anything further they wanted to discuss. At the close of round one, the trial court excused six prospective jurors for cause on consent of the parties based on their answers during voir dire, including two prospective jurors who did not raise their hands to group questions posed by defense counsel. Neither counsel made any individual challenges for cause. The prosecutor then exercised three peremptory challenges. Defense counsel, before exercising defendant's peremptory challenges, asked the court for a moment to confer with defendant off the record and then, after a pause in the proceeding, exercised three peremptory challenges. The clerk read the names of the four remaining prospective jurors, including prospective juror number 10, and defense counsel responded that those four will do. Prospective juror number 10 was seated as a juror. At the close of jury selection, defendant had several peremptory challenges remaining. Defendant was convicted, upon a jury verdict, of second-degree murder. At sentencing, the trial court commented on the high quality of advocacy by the prosecutor and defense counsel. On direct appeal, defendant argued that his trial counsel's failure to challenge prospective juror number 10 constituted ineffective assistance of counsel. The appellate division affirmed. In rejecting the ineffective assistance of counsel claim, the court reasoned that it was based in part on matters de or the record and that a CPL 440.10 proceeding is the appropriate forum for reviewing the claim in its entirety, i.d. at 1,174. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. Defendant raises an ineffective assistance of counsel claim under the New York and federal constitutions based on a single alleged error. Failure to challenge prospective juror number 10. Under both the New York and federal standards, defendant bears the burden of establishing that counsel's performance was constitutionally deficient, People v. Campbell, 2017, citing People v. Nicholson, 2016. The constitutional guarantee of effective assistance of counsel is met where a defendant was afforded meaningful representation based on the evidence, the law, and the circumstances of the particular case. Viewed in totality and as of the time of the representation, People v Benevento, 1998, quoting People v Baldi, 1981. To prevail on an ineffective assistance claim, a defendant must demonstrate the absence of strategic or other legitimate explanations, i.e., those that would be consistent with the decisions of a reasonably competent attorney, for the alleged deficiencies of counsel. A single error can constitute ineffective assistance but only when it is sufficiently egregious and prejudicial as to compromise a defendant's right to a fair trial, People v Carbon, see also Harrington v Richter, 2011. Generally, the ineffectiveness of counsel is not demonstrable on the main record but rather requires consideration of factual issues not adequately reflected on that record, People v Brown, 1978, see also People v Harrison, 2016. By codifying the writ of error quorum nobis in CPL Article 440, the legislature crafted a procedure for such scenarios. To that end, Article 440 permits defendants to complete the record by putting forth sworn factual allegations in support of a motion to vacate the judgment of conviction and authorizes evidentiary hearings on those motions, CPL 440.10, 440.30 thereby providing a vehicle specifically for the investigation of claims dependent on matters de or the direct record, CCPL 440.10 requiring denial of a motion to vacate if sufficient facts appear on the, direct, record to have permitted adequate review of the claim on direct appeal but defendants unjustifiably failed to perfect the appeal. Such investigations are vital to a defendant's claim when the record on direct appeal is inadequate to permit the reviewing court to determine whether there was an error that deprived the defendant of the constitutional right to a fair trial. Thus, although there may be some cases in which the trial record is sufficient to permit a defendant to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim on direct appeal, see People v. Nesbitt, 2013, in the typical case it would be better, and in some cases essential that an appellate attack on the effectiveness of counsel be bottomed on an evidentiary expiration by collateral or post-conviction proceeding brought under CPL 440.10, Brown, see also Campbell. That is especially true as to ineffective assistance of counsel claims based on the defense's acceptance of a prospective juror counsel's decisions during jury selection may be based on a myriad of factors, including not only the prospective juror's statements or actions reflected in the record, but also matters to or the record on the direct appeal. Nonetheless, defendant argues that the voir dire record reveals that prospective juror number 10 harbored an actual bias against him, citing the juror's statements that, Upon reading pre-trial publicity about the case, he made up his mind then that he didn't like the circumstances, as well as his failure to unequivocally guarantee that he could be impartial when the trial court questioned him immediately following those statements. Defendant asserts that the alleged error, by violating his right to a fair trial, is sufficiently egregious to constitute an effective assistance standing alone. An actual bias is one that precludes a juror from rendering an impartial verdict based upon the evidence seduced at trial, CPL two hundred seventy point two zero, C. Murphy v Florida, nineteen seventy five, see also People v. Torpy, nineteen eighty-four. A determination of whether jurors lack the ability to be impartial turns on whether, based on the totality of the Voir Dire record, it is evident that a preference for one side over the other would impact their decision making. See Murphy, See also Patton v. Yount, 1984, People v. Johnson, 2000. Thus, we have consistently held that a prospective juror whose statements raise a serious doubt regarding the ability to be impartial must be excused by the trial court unless the juror states unequivocally on the record that he or she can be fair and impartial, People v. Harris, 2012, quoting People v. Chambers, 2002. In the context of pre-trial publicity in a case, a juror who reads about a crime in the news must be able to lay aside his or her impression or opinion and render a verdict based on the evidence, but it is not necessary that jurors be totally ignorant of the facts and issues involved, particularly in these days of swift, widespread and diverse methods of communication, and it should be expected that jurors will have formed some impression or opinion as to the merits, Irvin v. Dowd, 1961 see also people v cahill 2003 we reject defendants argument here that prospective juror number 10 statements during voir dire reflect actual bias against defendant predicated on any evidence precluding the juror from rendering an impartial verdict as opposed to general discomfort with the case based on media coverage contrary to defendants assertion the jurors verbatim statements did not reveal what about the case gave rise to his uneasiness whether it be the seemingly random nature of the shooting, the defendant's or victim's identity, or the manner in which the police investigated. Nor did this juror convey that his uneasiness was connected to any particular personal experience or relationship, or whether his impressions risked predisposition toward the prosecution or defense. Moreover, as both the prosecutor and trial court indicated in questioning the juror, This case turned not on a dispute about the nature of the crime but on the prosecutor's ability to prove that this defendant committed it, an issue not impacted by the juror's apprehension. Pivotally, where no actual bias is evidenced on this record, additional statements by the prospective juror and matters outside of the record could have provided defense counsel with reasons to retain the juror. First, although prospective juror number 10 initially equivocated when asked if he could be fair and impartial. That exchange occurred early in the voir dire and was followed by a substantial discussion as to whether the prospective jurors were fit to serve. During which he stated that he could go by the law concerning depraved indifference murder if he felt it was a good case and that he would view police testimony just as any other. Second, the record does not reveal the identity of the four prospective jurors who individually answered affirmatively when defense counsel asked them whether they could acquit if the people presented insufficient evidence defendant, in the absence of any challenge to the juror in question in the trial court, does not get the belated strategic benefit of his silence by now arguing on direct appeal, without support in the record, that prospective juror number 10 was not one of them. Third, Defense counsel asked collectively several questions to the prospective jurors framed to uncover bias against defendant and, although other jurors were excused for cause on consent based on their negative responses to these questions by failing to raise their hands, this juror evidently answered in the affirmative. When viewed in totality, the voir dire record Reflecting only the juror's generalized discomfort based on media coverage and a lack of clarity regarding his subsequent answers, does not show a substantial risk that the prospective juror would not properly discharge his responsibilities, nor does it cast doubt on his ability to be fair, People v. Barboni, 2013. Additionally, the record is silent as to what was said between defendant and his counsel during the conference immediately before counsel informed the court of his peremptory strikes. A defendant's fundamental right to be present during the voir dire of prospective jurors is predicated on the right to personally assess the facial expressions, demeanor and other subliminal responses of potential jurors in order to choose his or her jury, People v. Entomarchi, 1992, quoting People v. Sloan, 1992. A defendant's views at trial about a prospective juror as conveyed to counsel are relevant to an ineffectiveness claim based on the joint decision to accept that juror. Here, where we do not know what was said between defendant and his counsel or how that conversation may have affected counsel's impression of prospective juror number 10, the ineffective assistance claim cannot be resolved on direct appeal. Defendants' argument that counsel's decision not to challenge the juror is rendered constitutionally defective by the lack of an unequivocal assurance of impartiality by the juror on the voir dire record. Like that required to uphold a trial court's denial of a defendant's for cause challenge to a juror who has revealed a state of mind likely to preclude impartial decision making, C. Johnson, is misplaced. To be sure, we have recognized that the use of the type of collective question and answer techniques employed by defense counsel in this case does not provide an unequivocal statement of impartiality sufficient to avoid a meritorious for cause challenge where the juror has previously demonstrated partiality. See People v. Arnold, 2001. However, it does not follow that defense counsel is constitutionally ineffective for failing to challenge a juror after generally asking such questions of the entire venere, and receiving satisfactory answers. A defendant's challenge for cause of a prospective juror irrefutably demonstrates that defendant did not accept the juror. Accordingly, the propriety of the trial court's decision to deny such a defense challenge turns entirely on the juror's responses on the voir dire record. By requiring an unequivocal assurance of impartiality to impanel a juror over a for-cause challenge, we have encouraged courts to err on the side of granting such challenges, observing that the worst the court will have done in most cases is to have replaced one impartial juror with another impartial juror, quoting People v. Colhane, 1973. However, where, as here, the defense may have wanted the prospective juror to sit on the jury, the court does not have room to err on the side of caution in that way without risking impingement of the defendant's right to choose his or her jury. For these reasons, defendant has failed to demonstrate, on this record, the absence of strategic or other legitimate explanations for counsel's alleged error, Barboni, see People v. Spocito, 2018. Not only is this record silent concerning what. If anything, defendant conveyed to counsel during their conference in reference to this prospective juror, but the voir dire record as a whole is also inadequate to support anything more than second-guessing the reasonableness of counsel's decision. In this case, where the trial record does not reveal that the juror was actually partial to one side, defendant cannot use the absence of a challenge to the juror in question to now argue that counsel was ineffective on an incomplete record. A CPL 440.10 motion is the proper mechanism for the litigation of the claim. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Decided May 7, 2020. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors' Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at Nipt Law www.nypti.org slash law.